I'm Megan Lawrence, and welcome to the Wild Leaders Podcast. Wild stands for Whole and Intentional Leader Development, and in this episode, you'll be listening to one of our Wild Conversations. Wild Conversations are interactive virtual experiences every Friday for one hour with leaders from around the country. It's no cost to join or attend, and you can sign up by visiting wildleaders.org backslash wildconversation. You can also listen on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Please follow us and subscribe. Wild Conversations are led by our founder and CEO, Dr. Rob McKenna. Named one of the top 30 IO psychologists alive today, Dr. McKenna is passionate about developing leaders and transforming the way we see people in our organizations. As he will tell you, we have the tools at our fingertips to invest in our people in ways that are meaningful to them and will get the results we need. 30 years of research has taught us how much people learn and grow on the job. We have what it takes to create rich learning environments for the people we lead, and all we have to do is begin to act on what we know. Thanks for joining this wild conversation. All right, let's light this thing up together. This is a a, a big topic, unlikely leaders, and I realize it is somewhat thematic of. Uh, what I feel like is my last 25 years. I don't know if I'm how how old you have to be when you start to claim years as a part of your adulthood, but um, it is this this theme is is certainly running and has threads throughout my work and life. This, this this concept of unlikely leaders is like the first question that comes up is like what is an unlikely leader? And I think you know me. I got to figure out the opposite. So one of the best ways to think about the concept of unlikely is to think about what is likely. So when you think about the definition of likely, something that is likely is, this is the most common definition I've seen, is highly probable, all right? Highly probable. And it's oftentimes the word prop, or those words highly probable are preceded by words like very, more, or quite. Like very highly probable would be something that's, that's, that would be likely. To be unlikely, therefore, would be something that is not probable, that is unlikely would be not to be expected. Or I even added this, like within conventional wisdom, like you could almost think of it that way. When something is unlikely, it is not probable. It is, it is not very, pro- it is very not probable, if you will. It's, it's not expected and it's, it's surprising. And so when you put the terms together, unlikely leaders, I started to put this together. I'm thinking, okay, unlikely leaders are leaders who are not probable. It's not probable. They are unexpected. They are surprising. Um, They are outside of convention. And it takes a moment of paying attention to see them, to see uh, what's also interesting. It takes a moment of paying attention. I've always been fascinated by that, those words, paying attention, because it, it implies that to give our attention to something will cost us something. Paying attention is interesting. So it, that, and I think even we even we might say it while paying intention might cost us something. So there's there's a cost to actually giving our attention to something, and I think it, it is difficult sometimes to see unlikely things. I think sometimes it's difficult to see unlikely things. Um, in that way, this is what also when uh, old Doctor Halleck and I were having a conversation, we both went this, down the same path. That is, in that way, wild leaders are unlikely leaders. 
Like we are a part of a community together. When I've talked about when something is wild, like it's surprising, right? It catches us off guard. It's kind of excites us because we, it's a lot of unknown in it. And so in many ways, wild, just to be wild and to be among us is to be unlikely. And we're full of surprises. Um, things were unlikely to occur. And um, I want to also address that I think there are, there are at least three types of unlikely leaders. And I have to say this every time. I'm working this out with, with you all. I've written a lot of things. I wrote a book that kind of is all about this. My first book, Dying to Lead, was I wrote a whole chapter about this concept of unlikelihood um, and used some other terms as well. But, um, but it's also something that I'm continuing to learn about throughout my lifetime, I hope. And so, but I did think about this, that there are at least three types. There are those who started out unlikely in terms of leaders. Okay, you with me? Some of us started out unlikely. There are those who started likely and then became unlikely, or, or I would also suggest kind of disqualified, either in their own mind or in the mind of others. And I, we're surrounded by very, very senior leaders, for example, who their, their career took a turn. Um, they may have experienced even some sort of downfall or a failure or a moral downfall, and then they disqualified themselves. Um, or the world disqualified them. And then I think there are those, there are those who are a part of whose faces I'm looking at right now where you're a mixed bag. And I think this is a lot of us. There are some parts of our story that are likely and there's in terms of our leadership or our investment in leaders like this. And there's some parts of our stories that are very unlikely. So I think I, I want to pay attention to that because I, I think there's different, there are different types. Now I want to give you also uh, my fundamental assumptions. This is my best shot. I always think it's important to lay out my assumptions. And these are the things that I'm continuing to work out, work out. For, the, for the purpose of today, I think we're talking about individuals and not groups. All right. So I, you all know that know me, know that I'm drawn towards thinking about individual leaders and not groups, while sometimes I think it's important to think about groups. So we're not talking about whole groups of unlikely leaders, but we're talking about for the for main purpose today is to talk about individuals. And what's interesting is, is that in my experience, there are likely and unlikely leaders in every group. Um, and then I think there, there it's in, in research, you call it between and within variants. Like there's, there's, it's interesting when you start to look at groups, compare groups, or you look at individuals within groups, all those things are important. The second assumption is this, that we need both types. I think there is a place for people who have, who have always felt or been drawn in more, more likely kind of candidates for leadership. And I think there's also importance that we pay attention to the unlikely ones that sometimes we don't. And so hear me when I say that, and I'll unpack that a little bit more in a second. I think also that our feelings of what's fascinating, psychologically speaking, is that our, our, our feelings of being likely or unlikely are both something that we are responsible for and that others are responsible for. That's that weird thing. You know what I mean? It's like that self-fulfilling prophecy is sometimes I can label myself as unlikely and then I can get stuck there when, in fact, I have something to own in it. But also there's times where people have put me in a box that, I, that it might we may need to look at. So the other thing is this, is that I kind of have mentioned this. I have five assumptions. <laughs> I think I've been through three now. The fourth one is this, that it takes thoughtfulness and paying attention to see them or even to see ourselves this way. And I think this is why I think in so many cases we are built to default to what is apparent to us. Does that make sense? Give me a nod. I need that. I need that kind of that visual amen. Like sometimes we are built to default to what's more apparent to us. So it takes a little energy. And then the last thing um, is that this is my last assumption. Our understanding of their unlikelihood begins with our understanding of our own. 
I think that we all have a story sometimes that sometimes we think that we're the only ones who feel that, that way. And I hope that as a part of this conversation, you see that you're not, that you are not alone in some of the feelings you have. But I think it's important for us to, to give ourselves permission to pay attention to that. And even sometimes some of us feel ashamed even describing it, or we feel like we don't have permission. In many business contexts, I'm telling you, what we're talking about today is very foreign, very foreign. So um, I want to tell you what, what does the research have to say that's relevant to this conversation? I mean, it's just a little nod to a little bit of research. It's kind of fun. So it's interesting to look at the, the big, big five personality traits as they relate to um, leadership emergence and effectiveness. So some of you are going to wish this whole talk was about this. I get that, but uh, we can send you some resources maybe. But the big five, uh, there's big five personality traits that have been studied over and over and over again, probably the most uh, validated and reliable set of, of, of things around things that are less likely to change in us. And let me tell you what it says about emergence and effectiveness, just to, and we're not going to spend much time, but extroversion is predictive of both emergence and effectiveness. Now, that's that's across large samples and populations, okay? So some of you are like, no, introverts can be leaders, of course. But I will tell you that it is more likely that if you were to look at the whole population, extroverts tend to emerge into and, and effectiveness has also been correlated. The second thing, neuroticism, this is not surprising, not predictive of emergence or effectiveness. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that because I literally score half neurotic. So I don't know what that means. Um, but <laughs> the third one, openness to experience is predictive of both. Emergence into leadership and effectiveness. And again, keep in mind, if you are, if you're less open, that doesn't mean this doesn't, you know, that you can't emerge or be effective as a leader, just says in general. Um, agreeableness is neither positive nor negative. It's kind of non-findings. And then conscientiousness does not predict emergence, but it does predict effectiveness. Um, my point is this, is that it's just interesting to think about the, the science, like some of, some of our wiring, some of the things about emergence into leadership and effectiveness are, may have some predictions across large samples of people, but that most of what leadership is about, you know, if at least half to not, to not more, is something you become and not something you are. And that's a big mental shift, right? Because we have to be careful about the language we use when we talk, if we use language in organizations all the time that tells people it's who you are and not something you become. When we talk about high potentials versus non-high, or, or just when we talk about high potentials, we actually assume, we kind of communicate to everybody and then there's the low potentials, right? So it's always, I always feel like that's probably me because it's like 85% of the people. So be aware that our language does matter, but that, that most of what leader, leader, at least half to much more about leader emergence is something we become and not something that we are. So, I've spent, man, I don't know, 25 years more now. Um, I would say spending a lot of time identifying and investing in unlikely leaders. And I will tell you that I have some baggage about this. I wrote a book called Dying to Lead that published in 2008. When I reread my book, I realized I think I was taking a lot of shot, a lot of shots at likely leaders. <laughs> I was kind of over this kind of the all the tough get promoted. And you know what I mean? It's like strength is what matters and do this. And then you'll be a great leader. And part of me was taking a shot and saying like, it's not enough. So I, so I think it's funny in my own development, like realizing, like, I think maybe as I've gotten a little older, <laughs> maybe I'm maturing, maybe, but it's, it's sort of paying attention to both. But what I would say is that uh, when I've had a chance to, to work with students, I'm going to, I'm going to turn 
this unlikely concept into one particular uh, aspect of that. If you ask students from different parts of even the world, because this has happened to me, who I've had it to the honor of investing in, um, there is one word that a few of you are here that people tend to associate with me that I didn't know until I was told this. Like I didn't realize it until I was in India because I kind of knew it for my students in the United States. And I, I asked a big group of students, there were like 200 of them, and I said, I don't know why this came up. They said, conviction. And, uh, and so they, 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 I realized that that's a big, been a big, a big theme in my life. And it was, you know, I really have been drawn. And, and I think trying to identify and select people that feel what I'm going to describe is one part of, of, of unlike being feeling unlikely is the concept of reluctance. And uh, the, the concept, and so the thing I've, I've written about, I have a chapter in my first book called Reluctance to Lead. And I think uh, it's that, that disqualification. I wanted to find that. But one of the reasons that conviction has been so important to me is because I think in the communities I've been a part of, we've really tried to identify, even select people who have a sense of their own reluctance to do something, to step in. Because they, they feel like, I don't really qualify. I got that imposter syndrome. I don't belong here. So even when we were selecting graduate students, we're kind of looking for that sense in them. And so, and much of that time was spent for me was, was trying to work at developing a sense of conviction. And if you ask those students, like, how does McKenna define conviction? I, I always talk about it as showing up like you mean it, which, is, which, which has a lot of other things packed into it, but that, but that, uh, my attempt has been to, to build conviction, a sense of self, a sense of courage, a sense of, I may not feel likely, but I also, but I would have the, the courage to step out and try. And I might see something. And I think this is it, that, that concept of reluctance is where I want to spend a little, I want to hover around that for a second. And so let me, let me tell you, let me define this for you. And let me ask you a question. So if reluctance to lead, and I define that as uh, a fundamental awareness of the stakes for you and for other people and the possible costs that you might have to pay. So it's, it's an aware, a reluctance is, is an awareness of the stakes involved in the game of leading. And uh, so that's what I would, if, if now think about this. So if that definition makes sense, if reluctance to lead was a fundamental leadership competence what would change in your thinking and your actions about yourself and about the potential leaders around you? Now, I want to be careful because I don't know if reluctance to lead fits like as a competence. I would suggest it's something we should look for. And I, in, my, in my first book, I really went at that. I was like, reluctance to lead is a competence. It's kind of a weird competence to put on the list. But, but if we think, and I'm going to break this down in just a second. And I know some of you are thinking, every time I talk about this, there are good friends of mine who look at me and they look at me cross-eyed and they, you know, cross-eyed and they go like, I don't get it. Why, what, I don't, I don't get it. All I'm asking you to do is just hang in there, pay attention long enough, like to maybe there's something to see, because I understand that some of us are like, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a key. I'm okay with that. I would disagree, but I'm okay. Now think about this. Here's another question. How would it change if reluctance to lead was a competence? How would it change the way you select leaders? or your own feelings about your qualification to lead. If, if we were looking for it as something that was important, that how would it change how we would, our own feelings about our qualifications? How would it change your investment in the development of other leaders around you and how you think about your own learning? 
Like there's all kinds of things this, this would impact. And here's why I'm saying this, why I'm, I just want to put that on the table that that fear and that possibility, and I, fear is like the deepest level. Reluctance is like, that's that, you're not afraid necessarily, but you're still aware that the stakes are really high. And it's, and so I, I do believe this, that it is the unlikely and not yet apparent leaders who may be our greatest hope for the future. I think that we need, we need leaders who do not have as much of that fear. So I, I would say that it's part of the recipe that we're so often ignoring in our culture that's so important. And their reluctance, just like ours, doesn't disqualify them, but serves as the measure of their understanding of just how the state, high the stakes are for all of us. That their understanding of the stakes is their understanding of just, this might cost me something. This is the real conversation we do not have about leaders. You all, I'm looking at so many of your faces, and you know what I'm talking about. Like that stepping out and going first, it will cost us something. Or it may. And, and I'm not saying we have to pay all those coffee. That's why part of our vision has been to develop a generation of courageous and sacrificial leaders. Because when I say sacrificial leaders and I describe that, I'm not saying like you sacrifice everything all the time, but I'm talking about an awareness of the stakes and the costs that may come to me personally that no one talks about. And this is why we burn leaders up all the time. And so, um, so let's get a little deeper into this. What is, what is a reluctant leader? And why reluctance? Um, and why is this so important? Leaders who, who so often, the leaders are people who go first. And so when you go first, that's a tough space. Now you're out in front. Now you're exposed. Now you're going to have to figure things out. Now you don't, the people that were your friends now work for you. So you can't talk to them all. Like it's, you go, step out and you go first. There's a lot to be reluctant about, you know, in that. And I think something, what's so powerful about someone's awareness is that reluctance is sometimes a beacon sometimes a very small beacon showing humility like it's humility expressed it's it's that sense that i don't know if i belong in the game so what would it mean to hang on to that but not be overwhelmed by it it shows us an awareness i've already said this that the stakes are high for them it may include a, awareness of the necessary sacrifice um and i think sometimes and unlikely leaders are people that we don't see quite yet um we don't immediately recognize as leaders bringing leader capacity i I, um, I never forget, I was um, right after the, the, the earthquake in Haiti, I was uh, in the Dominican Republic and I just, it just so happened I was there. It was just kind of a cool experience to right in that moment. And, and there were a lot of uh, Haitian folks coming across the border into the, into the DR. And so I, was, I had a chance to see, it was interesting seeing uh, large, large groups of children who, were, uh, who had been separated from their parents in the whole process. And what was fascinating in this moment, I know this, I'm not going to the two thirds world country just for, I just, it's one of these moments that struck me about this that I see, in our, I see in our culture here as well, is that when you were with large groups of kids, the kids that came forward over the first couple of days are the ones I paid attention to. I remember talking to other people, other adults that I was with, and they were saying like, hey, don't you love so-and-so and so-and-so? And they were like, we started to spot kids. But it wasn't until the third day that I thought to myself, I bet those are the kids that are more extroverted. And I started to look for the kids standing on the back wall and how difficult not only it was to see them, but to get to them. Because the extroverted kids were right here. And I don't want to dismiss those extroverted kids. I'm not doing that. But I also want to say it took a moment to pay attention. I think that happens in every context I've ever, I've ever been around. And so... I think here, here's a couple of things, because I think this in many ways comes down to 
both a there's there's an issue around when we think about unlikely leaders and this concept of reluctance that it is it is both an issue i'm going to go kind of organizational for a second of selection and development so i just want to give a couple of thoughts around like how do we how do we recognize unlikely leaders and reluctant leaders and how do we also maybe develop them and here's a couple of thoughts imagine this imagine for i don't maybe some of you do this and i'm just good on you if you do I've been watching a lot of Australian television, so good on you. Do they say that in Australia? I don't know. It sounds Australian. But anyway, so imagine if every leader was asked this question. What causes you to hesitate to take this job if I offer it to you? And I am so over the response that is the response you're supposed to give. I am, I am quite literally afraid of any leader, Not I shouldn't say the leader, but I'm afraid of a process that props up people who cannot honestly answer that question. Because if we aren't aware, every leader, every time you've stepped into a leadership role, there's things you wish you had known, right? There's things that you always inherit those things. Shouldn't we be willing to ask that kind of question? What should I know that is the likely, that is like, what, what another question would be, this one's not as clear, but I thought this, what should I know that is likely to be a problem for any leader who takes this job? I would love to ask a candidate that question as you looked at, because I would say some of them would say like the job description is massive and no human being outside of a giant army of robots could ever do this job. You know what I mean? Like there's things that we would say if we were honest in those processes. So I think it'd be interesting to think about how, what selection processes would look like. How would we look at people? What would we, what conversations would we want to have opened up? But I think what's interesting is this concept of inviting people into a new perspective. I've had, um, you know, so many there, uh, so many experiences. Uh, India has profoundly shaped me. I've had a chance to to get to know and invest in students over the long haul there, and I'll never forget these different experiences. Like I had one leader in India. This it was a it was a young man who came up to me and said, "Dr. McKenna, how do I know when it's my time to lead?" I had never had someone ask me that question before, and I was like wow, I want to just sit, I want to have a chai with you and just sit down. Let's talk. Let's talk about that. Um, I had another, I had another experience where I watched a, um, now, now some of the, the leaders that were the emerging leaders we're working with there come out of Dalit and tribal populations. So they'd be sort of what some people describe as outcast or people that are outside of the caste system. So in terms of their group identity, there's also this sense that there's that level of thing going on. But what was fascinating to watch that I'd never seen in the U.S. before with my students here was over a day of inviting this particular person into these questions, I literally watched his posture change because he came in with this. This was this was the posture that that uh, that he would bring from his context. And as we started to ask him questions, just a process of questioning, inviting him into these really hard to answer questions, I watched his I watched him sit up over a, over a six hour day together. Just nuts. Um, and it's just, I just think it's, it's been profoundly impactful when I thought about what does it mean to just sort of invite them into a new perspective, to invest in them over the long haul, to give them permission that the reluctance isn't a curse, but that it's actually something that may be a competence that they carry. Because the other part of that is that I think that the risk is, is that I hope you hear this from me also. I think it's one thing to be reluctant and then transition into not reluctant. I think that's not the point. The point would be, how do we hang on to that sense of our own misfitness that keeps us humble and it's the same time we build enough, enough efficacy and courage to step out there because if we just become everyone just get develops conviction you do you i do me we're all good it's all good then we get the same thing we've had 
And so I think, especially in our context today, I look at all of you and I think like, you are the future, <laughs> you know, and we are investing in people who are the future. These kinds of thought, this kind of thoughtfulness. Um, you all know this, that, you know, we, we started the, or some of you do that. We started what's called the wild foundation a little while back in 2020. And it's been this amazing moment for us to work with populations of leaders who don't have access to, to sort of world-class leader development and people like you and to bring them around. But what's been interesting about that is that in those populations of people, there are just as many likely as unlikely leaders. You know what I mean? No, no matter where you're looking. And so it's just, it's been an amazing season in that for us as well as to see some of that reality. I want to finish with this as we launch out. Um, I do believe this. It is the it is the unlikely and not yet apparent leaders who may be the other half of the equation for a hopeful future. I really believe that. We follow conviction. So building conviction in, leader, in a leader who brings a healthy dose of reluctance is deeply necessary. Conviction will draw us if we like it. Do you hear me? We follow convictions we like. It repels us when we don't. And, but it's the leaders who bring a healthy sense of both reluctance and conviction that will transform us. I think they're the ones that could actually have the greatest power for change. Thanks for joining this Wild Conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Wild Leaders, visit us at wildleaders.org. If you want to purchase the Wild Toolkit, visit wildtoolkit.com. If you'd like to join the interactive live recording with other leaders, Sign up at wildleaders.org backslash wild conversation. I'm Megan Lawrence. Have a great day.